Um, what, uh, what a great day this is, and I would say, say to you, it's a good day. Um, are you able to pull up that graphic there, brother? There we go. All right, let's begin in the most appropriate way, and that's to pray. Our Father, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is much that we need of you. But before we ask those needs, we would like to thank you. I'd like to thank you that this day you've gathered us together through the working of your Spirit to listen to the Word of God. We'd like to thank you that the Spirit of God assumes the teaching role today, that the Spirit of God is the one who uh, brings understanding, brings illumination, brings conviction. We'd like to thank you that all of this has been orchestrated by you, that you have saved us, you teach us, you nourish us, you comfort us, you build us up. Everything is by you, through you, for you, and in you. And for this, we thank you, Father. We, we cast ourselves upon this uh, uh, express dependency. Now, Father, as we come, may you grant us, may you grant us extra time, extra uh, understanding. May the Spirit of God be, be teaching our hearts as we sit and listen. I pray this would be all for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night, when we started, we talked about this thing called faith. And if you weren't here, I'll just have a slight, a small review. And the idea of faith is that, you know, it's not just about facts. It's, a, it's, it's there's, there's a history of faith, and we went back to Genesis to talk about it. We said, now, it's not just about the content, but it's really about some, fa- uh, some different features of faith. And one of the most important ones was it's, it's about a person and the reliability, the trustworthiness of that person. I need you to know something today, and that's that you have the most trustworthy person in all of the universe as your Lord and Savior. There is never a moment where he goes, oh, I forgot about that one. He he even calls himself the trustworthy one, the genuine one in the book of Revelation. He, He calls himself that. Now, I don't know what you think, but there are times in living in our culture, I wish somebody would just be honest, don't you? Need I say the word politics? And we go, oh, yeah, right? But our, ju- our Jesus is just like that. He is trustworthy, solid. There's nothing more beautiful than that, isn't there? You can trust someone's, someone's word. Our church history, contemporary church history, is littered with lives that have been exposed in their untrustworthiness. In fact, I was very disheartened this last week. I got a phone call from another brother, another state, place you don't know, people you wouldn't know. And he told me this horrible story of impropriety in serving in spiritual leadership. Trustworthy. Our Savior, our good chief and great shepherd is of this caliber of person. So faith for you and I should not be a stretch. It should be so easy. But ah, it's hard, isn't it? And then last night, we talked not only about the history of faith, the facts of faith, we talked about the facets of faith. Now, because this is about a person, I'm going to talk about, Lord willing, these next two hours, perhaps just one, maybe two features, two characteristics, two qualities of God reflected in Jesus Christ. And I'm doing that for a reason, and the reason is I want you to know who you're trusting. You see, 
there have been many writers today, some of them college professors, some of them who have uh, taken the center stage of being anti-God, the neo-atheist. What do you mean by that? The new atheist of today. See, the old atheist of yesterday, although they would say God doesn't exist, they were gentlemanly about it. You, you can believe that, and, and that's fine. This is what I believe. I just don't believe God exists. But the new atheists today are not just saying God does not exist. They say if he exists, he looks like this person. And so it's an attack, really. It shouldn't be new to us. Satan did it, and they're doing it too. And sometimes I think that affects us when we hear that sort of drum beating about your God is, is uh, impotent and your God is a figment of your imagination and your God is, uh, uh, is homicidal, he's, uh, he's uh, homophobic, and he's a kind of God that uh, is uh, genocidal, will kill all people, just read the Old Testament. And they sneer at God in so many different ways. And what's ironic is they actually never read the Bible, but that doesn't matter. And so I think the Christian hears that. Your God doesn't love everybody. What about the LGBTQ agenda? What about them? Your God doesn't have room for them? And we hear this stuff. And and, and some ways we go, oh, well, that's not true. But maybe when we're alone, we go, well, what is true? And what I find is that our faith gets shaken. This happened to me. The practice of medicine. I saw a patient one day. Boy, I could see him on that bed. Hmm. He was at the uh, auto plant. and They were unloading these large, round, long cast iron um, tubes, pipes, And something broke loose, and all of them rolled on this man. I'll never forget it. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, when you smash your finger in the door, and you pull it out, and it kind of goes back. That was his body. He came in, and he was coding. He had no signs of life. I took the probe, the the, uh, echocardiogram, and I, I slapped it on his chest. And for the first time in my life, I saw something I never have dreamed of, and his heart was flat. There was no blood in it. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was going down the hallway and telling his 16-year-old daughter that her father passed. She screamed 20 minutes straight. I could hear her as I saw other patients. I was driving home that day, and I said to the Lord, I cannot explain you. I cannot explain you. That this defies everything that is reality in my life. And you know, I think that happens to the Christian sometimes. You lose your mother, your best friend. You lose your father, your best friend. Why now? And the questions begin to pile in and all that mantra and that garbage that you're hearing from the opposition begins to sound louder and actually make some sense. And so what you have to do is you have to go back and you say, listen, who are you, God? Because I need to put my faith in that God. And so we began with faith. But today, I'm going to talk about the God who is good. The goodness of God. 
you remember that movie? I think it was one of the versions of God is Not Dead. Remember that one? You're not supposed to reference movies in a, in a sermon. I did. I broke like 10 homiletical rules already. So who cares? But in that, I forget which one. I think it may be the second one. If you saw that, there is this, this pastor guy, and, and he's kind of struggling with his faith a little bit. And then there's this like guy from Africa, like, a, like a coming back from serving the Lord in Africa. He's African-American. And the pastor guy is trying to get the car started, and it won't start. And he's going, he's going oh, another thing. Ever say that? Another thing. Like, God, can't you hold it together once? That's what you're really saying, right? And the African-American go, guy goes, well, let's pray about it. Now, I know it's Hollywood, but this really does happen. And so he prays and asks the Lord. He tries again. The car starts, and the African guy goes, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. I was given a version of this message in Africa, and I was introducing it just like this, and all the Africans go, and simultaneously, when I got to that line, they go, I say, God is good all the time. The whole congregation goes, uh, and or God is good all the time. And they go, all the time, God is good. And they all cheer and yell and scream. I'm going, I think I got them. I think they're interested, right? But this is, this is a very trite, cliche way to describe one of the most profound features of the person of God that therefore will will give you reason, if you will, to trust him. And that's my goal. See, my goal is to edify the body of Christ so that you are built up. And this is one way to do that, to talk about the character of God, the attributes of God. Now, this graphic really demonstrates it well, well, doesn't it? Now, what we're going to do in this next few minutes is we're going to go as long as we can. And when it's time to take a break, we'll take a break and we'll just pick up where we are. So this is like a continuous series throughout the morning. And I'm going to try to treat it exhaustively so that uh, we'll have a, a good understanding of at least one thing this morning. So the first step is we're going to look in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the words of the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the New Testament. And we're going to look at the words in the New Testament. And then we're going to give illustrations of this that really highlight the goodness of God. So that's our outline for this morning. And Lord willing, we'll get through it in one piece. Now, God is good, the goodness of God in the Old Testament. Now, I've selected this passage. It's in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. Now, why did I select this passage? Well, because Nahum was writing this treatise, this little prophecy against Nineveh. Remember, Jonah was a prophet that went to Nineveh, and Jonah preached that God was going to judge them. The Ninevites repented And that was much to Jonah's dismay. He pouted about it, went outside the city, sat across from the city, sort of waiting to see what lightning bolt would strike Nineveh. And funny thing, no lightning bolt struck Nineveh, and Jonah was mad. Don't you hate it when your will and God's will doesn't match up? You know, Jonah was the almost missionary. He goes to the place, he preaches what he's supposed to preach, and he's mad about the message. That's an almost missionary, and I can guarantee I've been just like that. But apparently, Jonah changed his mind, even though he was flat on his back, dying of thirst, the sun beating on him. God says, are you still mad? And he goes, or he says, are you still, is it right for you to be mad? Jonah goes, yes, I'm right. Give it up, man. You're, you're, you're wrong, okay? You're just wrong. So the Ninevites repent, and after a period of time, they go back into the ways that would bring judgment. And, and Nahum actually comes along to preach against them against the Ninevites. 
Now, in this first chapter, he talks about what's going to happen. But in the middle of the chapter, you have this phrase, the Lord is good. So let's just read a little bit. I'm going to read in verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. See that? It's a Hebrew poet, poetic device. Speaks one, speaks one very extreme, then speaks the other extreme. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and not at all, will not at all acquit the wicked. He is slow to do what he's got to do, but it will happen. Very poetic device. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. That's kind of funny because I'm pretty sure Jonah was in that whirlwind. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. What a poetic device. The clouds, they're like, they're like the dust when he walks on the earth. That's some pretty big feet, let me tell you. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. Those are two very, very uh, uh, lovely areas in Israel. Bashan is the, the area that's across on the uh, west or east side of the Jordan. And the, the king there was Og, king of Bashan, conquered by Moses. And it's fertile land, so fertile that the Reubenites and the, um, half the tribe of Manasseh and the Gadites said, can we stay here? So it's really nice. Carmel is a beautiful mountain. It's, it's right on the edge of the Mediterranean coast. If you just look off that mountain, you see the Mediterranean Sea. You go down this steep hill. You're into Haifa, today's current Haifa. It's marvelous, beautiful. And he's saying, listen, he dries up all the rivers and Bashan and Carmel wither. The most beautiful places, they wither because God has a sense of right and wrong. And when it's time to deal with wrong, he will reverse all that's beautiful. And he says, the flower of Lebanon wilts. What Lebanon's known for its trees. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Great power of God. Form, uh, you get the idea. He's formidable person you don't mess with this person who can stand before his indignation who can endure the fear, fierceness of his anger his fury is poured out like fire the rocks are thrown down by them now when we talk about the, this way about god it, it it causes us to think well maybe those naysayers are right but no you just can't come to god and say well, I like the good part of you, but I don't like the scary part of you. The scary part of you, I don't like. Let me tell you something. You need to be, you need to be thankful for the scary part of God because the scary part of God it happens to be described as his jealousy. <laughs> now, what do we mean when someone's jealous? Well, usually in a human relationship, we mean it's kind of a poisonous event that I'm jealous over you, something you have, something you are, something I'm not. And it's sort of a toxic environment. That's not how it is with God. When you say the word jealousy about God, you should think of it this way. I love you so much, I'm not going to give up on you without a fight. That's what it is. And he articulates that for you in James chapter 4, where he says, and our God is a jealous God. You are after your lusts and your desires and everything about yourself. And I'm coming after you just like a husband would come after his spouse or a wife would come after a husband. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to pursue you. I'll draw you out. That's the kind of God you have. So you should be grateful that he has passion, that he has jealousy for your soul. Where would you be if he did not have that for you? 
I'm thinking we wouldn't be in a good way, huh? How much of this motivated God to deal with the human race and create and plan the redemptive story that would be costly all for God? Aren't you glad he is a jealous God? Aren't you glad he will take and do anything and everything necessary? He will take and mount and and harness his power and harness his wrath and harness his abilities to deal with the chasm of difference between God and man. That is a beautiful feature of your God. So it's not like the naysayers is. It's not like the neo-atheists call out. They have a warped perception of God. God has this element, his emotional drive, if you will, that's where we get our emotions, that really bespeak of his passionate nature for your affection. It's not some sort of stalking thing. It's actually quite lovely when you think about it. All right, I digress. So we get to this point. And he's painted himself in this way. Now look at verse 7. The Lord is good. The Lord is good how? A stronghold in the day of trouble. So all of this is going to happen around you, Ninevites, and you Jewish people will see it happen, but you should know something, that the Lord is good. Now that word means, uh, in Hebrew, is is tob or tab. And there's, uh, there's several different ideas that are associated with the basic meaning here is good or beneficial pleasant or delightful favorable good uh happy joyful does what's right in fact if you were to do a little word study on this you would find the following thing you would find that there are five basic meanings and i'm going to go over those in detail but before i do that let's just see a couple of other scriptures now you don't necessarily need to turn to these but I will cite them for you. All right, let's look at uh, Psalm 30, nope, Psalm, I want to say 25.8. Don't turn to that. I'll read it to you. Good and upright is the Lord. Now notice, this goodness of God, this definition we're going to talk about, is associated with him being above reproach, of being high moral character. So his goodness is not just being a nice guy. It's being a nice guy with the right heart, moral, high moral character, right? You can be good and be very immoral at the same time. That's not God. He matches himself on both ends of the spectrum. Number two, look at this. It's uh, in Psalm 105, in 100, verse 5. The Lord is good. Same word. And notice this word. His mercy is everlasting. Now, generally speaking, the word mercy in the Old Testament comes from the word chesed. And it's it's a very unique word. In fact, if you do research on that, you'll find that there are articles written on that word alone going back 150 years. And this word uh, um, has this idea, chesed, of God's covenant, they say covenant love. And so what God does is he makes a covenant with Abraham and he introduces this idea of hesed. And and in fact, it's sung about almost in every little chorus that the Israelites sing in the Old Testament. Do you remember that psalm that says the mercy of the Lord endures forever? It's kind of like Antiphony. There's a line this, "The the Lord is great, his mercy endures forever. The Lord is powerful, his mercy endures forever. That psalm, that word mercy is hesed. 
uh, when they uh, when Moses saw the um, uh, uh, Egyptians overthrown, they said the mercy of the Lord endures forever. The Hesed, and so what it means is is that God made an agreement with Abraham, and He did so not because He had to but because he wanted to. That's the big difference. That God was coming as a superior um, ruler to a vassal, you know, somebody under him, and he didn't just impose all these uh, restrictions or duties upon the vassal who in return would give the, the master his loyalty. It wasn't that business transaction. When he uh, came and had that covenant with Abraham, God was giving him his very emotional, passionate person to Abraham. He's vested. That's the idea. You see, there's not a stronger expression in the Old Testament than that idea of God. Now, notice in the text, it said, the Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. Meaning, the reason why the Lord is good is because his hesed is, is, is eternal. It doesn't stop. And that's something that can comfort us today. The goodness of God is not because he's up there in heaven saying, well, I better do the good thing, Gabriel, because, you know, that's what God does. It's not like that at all. God, when you are invested in someone and you want their goodness, you want the best for them, you search for ways for the goodness to be expressed. You long for opportunities to do that. You, 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 you create moments of expression of goodness because your heart is so, so attached to the, uh, to the object of your love. And saints, that's you. That's God having you at the center of his affection, ransacking the opportunities of this life so that he could show you his goodness. That's the kind of God you have. That was expressed in Jesus, I might add. We'll get to that in a minute. I think the last text I want you to see in relation to uh, this goodness idea is in Jeremiah 33.11. And it says, Jeremiah 33.11 The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. In other words, hear the wedding party. The voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. Oh, look at that word. For his mercy is forever. What I want you to see here is that the eternality of his hesed affects his goodness, which means his goodness would be eternal also. Now, behind me are these five different features. This is from the theological word book of the Old Testament. Very nice resource if you're doing Hebrew word studies. And in that, it says, now listen, there are five basic areas that you can see the goodness of God is expressed in the Old Testament. Number one, it's practical. It's, it's economic. It's, it's beneficial for material things. And remember, that promise was made to Abraham in certain respects that you're population, your posterity would be like the stars of the heaven. The land will be yours from the Euphrates River over to the Egyptian River. Very practical, tangible, can seize, record, document things, right? We just accept it. That's who it is. By the way, that's a feature of the old covenant. The new covenant actually uses language like this. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not so much tangible, but definitely heavenly. 
And so we have a switch from Old to New Covenant in terms of uh, concept. All right, what's number two? It's an abstract goodness. It's desirable, pleasant, beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody like this, but they are just a delightful person to be. I have to confess to you, that's the very, that is one of the most important things that attracted me to my Mrs. Wonderful 40 years ago. We've been married 38 years. Passed that test. Uh, this August, August 31st, and, but we've known each other for 40 years, right? And uh, when I met her, she was 17. Um, and she just had the, 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 the pleasant beauty of a content, just a delightful spirit. Uh, you know, things would happen. She, would, she, would just, she was just so lovely. And even if they were painful, she was just so lovely. She, used to, she would raise the children and she would say, now you may not feel good, but it doesn't give you a right to be ugly to anybody. And I'm going, oh, well, I could probably learn a little bit about that one. Just this abstract quality of you're just a nice person in all circumstances. That's God. So God has a way of expressing goodness in a practical way and an internal way. What about number three? Quality. You see, when, we, when, we, when I was in Israel a couple weeks ago, they took us to an olive wood factory. Phenomenal. I've never been to this site before. And what they do is they cut the olive trees. They let it cure for three years in their little, their little shed. Then they'd bring it in. They had all these kinds of things. Now, they had machines that would carve the olive wood and make really cool things. And then they had hand carvers. And they showed me all their little tools and how long it would take to make all those hand carving uh, olive wood figurines. One had a certain type of quality that was the machine ones, and another had a tremendous hand-carved quality. Do you know how I know the difference? One was $10,000, one was $100, right? Guess which one I bought, right? Now, you see, there's a quality of your work that's superior, expert, high quality. That's God. God's goodness is the highest quality there. All right? Now think about that. Do you ever get a Christmas gift and you go, <laughs> anybody have that experience? Like the question is, what is it? And why would you ever think I want this? Right? That, that kind of question. Right? God never has troubles with gifts. He doesn't, he doesn't, oh man, I should have bought the other one. It was on sale. Never does that. He gives good gifts all the time, every time. Steve, I don't know. I've gotten a couple of gifts this last year, and they don't seem so good to me. Yeah, see, that's where this thing called faith enters in, which is what we talked about last time. All right, now, what else? Number, number four, moral goodness. Now, the only way you can appreciate moral goodness is when it's absent, right? Again, I'll refer to our famous political arena across the world. And we have fighting going on in, a, in other countries. And you know what? I'm not even sure who's right and who's wrong. I'm not sure who's telling the truth and who's not. We, uh, you, you move around to the Far East, and we're not sure what that country's doing or not doing. Did they, did they really do something with the COVID virus or not? And then you come back home to our country, or excuse me, South America, and you've got like dictators and, and coup attempts, and you come to our country, and we turn on the TV, and I don't care who you listen to, I'm not sure who's telling the truth. 
I just wish at some point, in some way, and somehow, we actually had somebody who was morally solid. Guess what? I've got great news for you. There's this guy. His name is Jesus Christ. And he will actually become, one day, after a seven year of kind of like dealing with the world in Israel, he will become world emperor. World emperor. And the thing about him is that he says that when he is in that position on the throne of this physical planet, which he always has owned, but he went to the expense of buying it back when it was stolen by Satan, what he'll do is he'll rule with righteousness and justice. Man, don't you like that? I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I was in the workforce and I would be working with my other doctors, they would purposely go slow. So I ended up seeing more than they did, and I'd do twice as much work. And there's nothing like doing twice as much work while somebody else is being lazy. Right? Don't you hate that? Right? That's not going to be part of the regime of this empire, uh, this emperor. His righteousness and justice will go down to the smallest detail and to the highest level. There won't be a lack of moral goodness, no immorality. There will be perfect, pristine goodness of the entire world. That, my friends, is something we long for. That's your God. That is your God, and that's who he is. Now, finally, the last one is technically or philosophically good. What do we mean by that? Well, what we mean by that is just this idea when we say, this is a good thing, right? Now, God did this, and I'll cover it in a minute about creation. He does creation and goes, it's a good thing. It's a good, whatever this is, whatever, all the tap, it's good. The way I, I like to experience it or think about it is when people get saved. We had this guy. He was saved six months ago. He came to our chapel the last two weeks. And, and he was so brand new Christian. And he's sitting there and he says to me last Sunday, he says, I'd like to be baptized. I go, well, have you been baptized already? Yeah. I don't know what it meant. I said, well, what do you think it means? I don't know. I was told I was baptized for the forgiveness of sins. I go, well. And so I explained it to him and the picture and Romans 6 and the whole thing. Literally, he goes like this. No, okay. That makes so much sense. Can I be baptized today? You go, well, don't you want your family to be here? I just want to obey God now. You know what I call that? Philosophically great. I wouldn't trade that moment for anything in the world. And guess what? I baptized him. I loved it. I thought it was, it was just, about, you know, the whole assembly was a flutter, and we couldn't believe the hand of God working right there. We had two other baptisms that day, too, and, and it was in the Hispanic meeting that we all gathered, and we're all just having a fantastic... I just stood back, and I looked over the flock, and I go, God, this is so good. That's what he means by this last one, right? He just brings goodness. All right, so this is the idea I need you to say. I want you to see a good description of the goodness of God. Let's look at, I've got three minutes, so we're going to use them all, okay? So we have the creative goodness of God. You said ten tell, right, bro? Ten tell? Okay, don't worry, I'm going I'm to keep to it. I can show you that I actually can tell time. All right. 
I do remember in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, 4, 10, 12, 18, 25, God saw that it was good. Now, if you're the creator and you make something and you finish as the artesian, the craftsman, and you go, ah, this is good, this is good. Pretty much what you say is the only expert in the room. So if you call it good, who's going to say, well, I don't think so. There's no one bigger than that. It's just God, and he's the, he's the artesian of all artesians, the craftsman of all craftsmen, and he made all that you see in its ecological balance, both from the celestial bodies all the way down to the microscopic nature of cellular DNA and mitochondria. You know, those little things that make energy that make you actually stay awake during this meeting. And so what happens is he's got this, this fantastic macroscopic way of balancing the planetary systems, the ecological systems, the, the, the systems of, of, of gravitational pull and centrifugal force and physics and the mathematics that's involved. He's got the biology outlined so that the sun and the chloroform and the CO2 and the oxygen are replenished. The water cycle is perfect. And oh, and if, by the way, you're wondering even something better than that of how something that looks like a piece of meat can actually come into your body and give you strength and energy he's got that too and he is saying it's good and then he comes along and he said listen there is something that may not be good now i'm a little confounded by that why would god who's perfect make something say everything's good and say oh wait 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 a minute there there is something that it's not good it's like he purposely put that in there to know that it would need to be fixed. And what was not good? It's not good that man should be alone. I can testify to you, it is not good for me to be alone. Okay. And so God says, and looking at the human race, he says, therefore, I'm going to make something, someone who is comparable to him. She'll be able to talk like he talks, walk like he walks, think like he thinks. They'll be able to interact on an intellectual level, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level. They'll be able to face each other, two different entities of the same piece of dust, so that they can be totally transparent and never be ashamed. This is brilliant creation at its finest, and God makes woman. And he says, now that's good. This is God. He is good in his creative ability, better than those people who are using their fine microscopic tools to make carved olive wood figurines. He was making the universe perfect. That's God's goodness. And let me tell you something. If God started out creation that way, what do you think he will do when he makes new creations? Are they going to be flawed? Are they going to have marks of scars? No. Your God specializes in quality goodness. And when He recreates you, when you come to Christ as Savior, He does things that takes those hard, uh, gnarly scars of a sinful life and He actually repairs them so that you can't ever see them again. Your God is so good that he will bring to you an atmosphere, an attitude, a a, a persona, a paradigm in which you can actually see life and see its goodness, although there is tragedy that's looming at every corner. Your God is that good. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. That's your God.
And that's totally different than those naysayers who are saying, I don't really see how your God is good. I say to you, Mr. Neo-Atheist, you don't understand the definition of good. All right, we're going to stop here. Let's pray, and we'll come back in a few minutes. Father, thank you for this opportunity to just begin to open the Word of God. Let us not escape today without knowing you better and trusting you more. In Jesus' name.